Welcome to Kankakee Podcast, where we talk about the people and places of Kankakee County. I'm Jake Lamore, and today's episode is going to be a little different than all the other ones you've heard so far. Or maybe this is the first episode that you've heard of the podcast in general. But it's a little different from all the others because we're not going to just be hearing from one person throughout the whole entire episode. We're actually going to be hearing different pieces of audio from different people that's actually a couple years old. And one of those people actually is is no longer with us. He passed away. Um, my so so to start, my oldest brother, Josh Lamore, just recently released a book called Coming Home. The Story of Mantino St. Joseph Church and Our Lady Academy. And it's a really great book. And I don't just say that because he's my oldest brother. I think uh, he did a beautiful job talking about the history uh, within the St. Joseph Parish, but also just kind of surrounding it. Because the opening part of the book, it actually focuses on the area of Mantino and uh, encompasses some of the area towns like Bourbonnais and Kankakee. And it just really uh, captures not only the building of the St. Joseph Parish in Mantino, Illinois, but just kind of the the communities and the, the people surrounding it. And um, it, it regardless of how you what your religion is, if if you're Catholic, if you're uh, another form of Christianity, Muslim, Judaism, whatever it is, I think you'll find this episode fascinating just because, or the book fascinating, I should say, just because it doesn't necessarily focus on the religion so much within the St. Joseph Parish. It doesn't really focus on the Catholicism part of it. It focuses more on just the actual history surrounding it. So it's it's really a book for anyone that just enjoys local history. Um, so throughout my conversation with my brother, Josh, that's actually who we're going to start off with. Uh, we'll hear from my brother, Josh, first. Um, but throughout my conversation with Josh, we'll be taking little breaks to hear these other uh, snippets of audio. While my brother was doing research for this book, which he started in, I believe, 2018 or, or 2019, he hired me to record oral histories with some of the well-known people within the parish of St. Joseph Church in Mantino. 
And I ended up recording four different people for him in 2019, between the winter and spring of 2019. And those are the people we're going to hear from throughout this. That's why I have this audio. And I won't tell you exactly who they are yet. I kind of wanted to uh, be a surprise for you. Or maybe you already know, because it actually lists the people's names in the book. So without further ado, let's uh, start it off. St. Joseph Church in Mantino and Our Lady Academy with my brother, Josh Lamore. What have uh, you accomplished since leaving uh, Kankakee County? What have I accomplished? <laughs> I mean, you know, we talk about your just your background and, and that, that'll kind of lead us up to um, the uh, book about St. Joseph and, and Mantino. I really believe that in a single human's lifetime, we have the opportunity to live many different lives, not that we die and become someone else or anything like that in a lifetime. I guess what I'm talking about is, you know, uh, we can be a lot of different people in a lifetime and we can do a lot of different things that make us almost a completely different person than the person we were before. In my music days, I didn't really understand that concept yet or anything, but um, I had more lives to live. And eventually I went on to school in Brooklyn, New York, um, I was in San Diego just before that. I was had lived there for about six months total, um, and then just completely changed directions. Went to the East Coast, um, and I, I studied at Long Island University in Brooklyn. Um, didn't have a dime to my name, so worked really hard to get every scholarship I could. Um, and you know, in order to do that, you have to get good grades, and I got really good grades. Um, and you know, that was between the the grades and all the extra projects I was doing in order to generate funds in order to be there and survive, uh, I gained a lot of attention at the school and uh, ended up as the valedictorian. Um, And that was in 2014. So you graduated valedictorian with what uh, degree under your belt? Oh, a a bachelor's uh, in uh, English literature. American and English English literature specifically, um, and a minor in philosophy. And I think maybe even more than the uh, American studies, it was the minor in philosophy that that has really that really kind of uh, really helped in the future. Just it's more rigorous writing. I had I had a few instructors that would question every single little word that I wrote on every single paper and just you know, beat me and beat me and beat me with corrections. And that made all the difference. I'm so thankful for anyone who is a heavy editor or is really critical when they're grading students' essays, no matter what level, because um, that is invaluable. Um, Forget about the student's feelings. The student needs to learn to get over those if they're really going to do something. And that really... Obviously, this is something we'll we'll get to eventually, but that really shines through on the uh, the the book on Saint Joseph Church uh, coming home, uh, the book that was recently released that you wrote. Um, it, it really it's just so well written, very concise, very clear, 
And I feel like that probably goes from what you just told me uh, with your uh, philosophy, philosophy teachers. Is that what you said? Yeah, it was, it was mostly the philosophy professors I had. There was one in particular that, you know, he was so great um, at you teach. Yeah. I mean, you know, philosophy is some of the most complicated writing and thought that there is. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like there's, there's no better way to learn how to write well than from uh, a philosopher. And uh, so I was lucky enough to have someone take me under uh, their wing. And um, I studied with him, even if I didn't actually have a course um, every single semester. And I still meet with him. Oh, once every two weeks, we don't, we don't really hash out, uh, you know, uh, papers or anything like that anymore. We're mostly just talking about things that we're reading and thoughts that we're having, but, uh, yeah, those things live on that's, long after. That's cool that you still keep in contact with them. Um, so yeah, right after graduating with your bachelor's, it was literally that same week of the ceremony. You hopped on a plane, you went out to Utah um, and started working at Cedar Breaks, which is uh, a national park. Um, and you were there for that season, which is a long time. You were there till what, October, November? Until the, until about the middle of October. Um, yeah. So it was, uh, towards the end of May, um, until, until the middle of October. Okay. Um, it was one of those situations where it all happened so fast that I put everything I owned uh, on the curb uh, for people to pick up and do whatever they wanted, and uh, then was off to Utah with just a bag. And that was all of my possessions uh, when I left New York uh, and, in 2014. And we're definitely, we're going to get into more of of Utah in, in a little bit. Um, I just kind of wanted to briefly just go through your timeline uh, to leading up to uh, the St. Joe's book. Um, sure. So then, uh, you know, after that first season, it wasn't long after that you went back to school, uh, you got your master's, um, and that was in library science, correct? Yeah, library information science. I, I went to the Pratt Institute, and the reason, the reason I decided on library school is actually a result of my experiences in the Park Service. Uh, you know, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it was at the end of the seat, that first season that I wrote a proposal to write this book. I saw that they didn't have one and thought there'd be a great opportunity to do so. In doing that, I started visiting the National Parks archives close by and some other archives and realized, wait a second, this would be a really cool way to spend my life living, living and working with all this really, you know, interesting stuff. Um, and so that's why I went to library school. I went to Pratt because it's, um, it's the, it's the longest running library school in the United States. Oh, wow. Uh, the only one that, that was older was the one at Columbia university down the street, but they disbanded their program in the seventies. So the Pratt Institute has the longest standing, uh, library program in the U S. And it wasn't long after you got your, your master's completed that I think, uh, the St. Joseph book kind of came up and, and, and how did that start? How did coming home, um, uh, was that something that 
our our mom came to you about, or was that your idea? I can't remember how it how it got started. I feel like it was your idea, but I could be wrong. Um, the Cedar book, the Cedar Breaks book came out. Uh, I think that was uh, just before, like a year before I graduated. That book came out, um, and I was giving a lot of talks and traveling a lot as a result of that. Um, and, uh, then it started getting passed around Mantino and Kankakee County. And, uh, a lot of people at St. Joseph's were like, oh, we need a book like this. We need, we need a history book similar to this. Um, and so I kept that in, you know, uh, the back of my hat and thought, well, you know, maybe if I decide that I want to pursue a writing career, maybe, uh, maybe I'll write a proposal, uh, to them. And I, I did write a proposal to them right after I graduated. Um, and not too much uh, later, and it was accepted, and then we started uh, drawing up plans to uh, put the book together. We'll get back to my conversation with my brother Josh Lamore in just a minute. Uh, right now, I want to play the first clip of the first oral history that I helped my brother record in order to uh do the the proper research for the coming home book, uh, the story of Mantino, uh, St. Joseph Church, and Our Lady Academy. And in the winter of 2019, the, f- the very first oral history I sat down and recorded was with Deacon Dick Balgaman, Richard Dick Balgaman. You may remember him if you were a uh, Uh, a frequent, uh, a parishioner, I should say, a parishioner of St. Joseph Church in Mantino. Um, And maybe if you weren't even a parishioner of St. Joseph, you might have known Dick just because of uh, his involvement with the local public access channel in Mantino. Uh, Village View TV 10 became TV 4. And in fact, uh, Richard was one of my first mentors when it came to to broadcasting. Um, at the age of 10, I, uh, I, was a, I was an altar boy at St. Joseph Church in Mantino, and that's when uh, Deacon Dick was a deacon. So being an altar boy, uh, you know, you obviously are working with the deacon and the priest. And so I would just have conversations with, with Dick about uh, how much I loved old classic Hollywood movies. And I think that kind of piqued his interest in me since I was only 10 at the time, and he was just amazed that I knew about all of these movies and movie stars of his generation when he was a kid. Um, so I, I told him that, you know, I was I wanted to become a cameraman. I wanted to make movies and things like that. So that's when he was like, why don't you come volunteer at TV 10 or TV 4? And he, you know, took me under his wing and taught me everything he knew. And I was very grateful that he saw the the potential in me, and I'll, I'll never, ever forget that. Um, unfortunately, Dick passed away uh, earlier this year, uh, February 3rd of 2021, but he lived a long, prosperous life. He died at the age of 91, and I'm, I'm forever grateful to him and, and his whole family and to uh, his wife, Juanita, who is always just so wonderful. Um, but uh, that, that's that's a whole nother story. But to uh, get to this clip, I'm going to play with you or play for you. Talking to Deacon Dick was when he uh, first came to Mantino uh, in the 1950s, coming from Berwyn, Illinois. I'm originally from Berwyn, Illinois. I came to Mantino in 1951. 
Uh, I was I went to school at the Cook County Hospital in, in, in uh, X-ray. I was an X-ray technician, and um, I got this opening at Mantino State Hospital, which was only going to be temporary because there were going to be an opening at Chicago State Hospital, in which I would work at Mantino for maybe six months until that opening in Chicago. But I stayed here. I met my wife, and uh, I never left. So, so is, is Juanita from? She, she's from Alton, Illinois. Oh. She was an activity therapist in the, at the hospital. I'm trying to remember, where is Alton from St. Louis, directly across from St. Louis, Missouri. Okay, I was going to say, I knew that wasn't anywhere close. So no, it's like, down south. Down yeah. south, yeah. yeah. Wow. So it's amazing that that's how both of you met. That's how we met. At working the... at the hospital here in town. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, I thought your family was originally from somewhere up north near yeah, Chicago. Right. Yes. Um, so what? So you were born and raised Catholic. Oh, yes, I was. Right. Obviously. Right. So yes, was. Um, you probably attended Mass at St. Joe when you started working Yes, I here? did. I start, uh, When I started working, I, I came to church here every Sunday at St. Joseph. And I'm, try, I'm trying to think who the priest was. And I can't think. It wasn't Father Pouillon. It was before Father Pouillon. And I can't think of his name. Maybe you know it. I know your dad would know. Le, well, when was LaRoe? Maybe that's who it was, Leroux, Father Leroux. I think that was Father Leroux. Because he's a name I hear all the time. Father Storm is the one that married Winnie and I. He was his assistant. You're right. It was Father Leroux, right? And Father Storm was a, was a young priest who was assistant there. Okay. And he's the one that married us. So did you get married at St. Joseph at Church? At St. Joseph Church, right. Okay. Yeah. And so it was Father Storm. Father Storm. What was, what year was that? It would have been, it's in the 50s. 1952. 52, okay. Because yeah, it was a year after we came. Oh, it was 1952. So what was the church, if you remember, going back to that that first time starting to attend Mass in the early 50s, what was St. Joseph like? What do you remember about it? St. Joseph was, Mantine was sort of a, a Canadian-French population here, and it reflected a Canadian-French church. The windows, the statues, the interior kind of reminded me of uh, something you might see in Canada in a Catholic church. Uh, as I was telling you, we had the altar railings, which they don't have anymore. That front part was, wasn't on the front of that either. It was just the church. The bells always rang. The bells rang at, on, uh, I'm trying to, they, what do they call that, uh, Angelus? You could always... You could always hear the—you knew what time it was because you could hear the bells ringing at St. Joseph. Did uh, they ring every hour? No, or was I, it just no I was, it was like maybe three times, and they had names for it, and I can't remember. I think noon, they rang at noon. And, of course, mass in the morning they rang. And there was one in the evening, too, like at maybe 5 o'clock or something, they, the bells would ring. But you can almost tell time just by hearing those bells ringing. Yeah. Compared to, you were kind of referencing that it was when you walked in the church for the first time that it was very much like a French Canadian. Yes, vibe well, they actually had uh, they actually had uh, a mass uh, in French when I was first there, and I can't remember it was the early mass, but who the priest was, I can't remember. It might, it might have been Father Pullian because I think uh-huh. he was French. Okay. He was a French background. It sounds they, French. Yeah, it, I think it was him that he had a a, a a mass in French. All the old timers are gone, of course, and now they're dead. But this, mm-hmm. this, this town was a predominantly French Canadian, and they did have a French Canadian mass mm-hmm. on Saturday, on Sunday morning, I think it was. 
on top of and the the, the regular mass was still in Latin. Yes, the regular mass was still in Latin, Latin until Vatican II, I guess, when they changed it in English. I'm kind of surprised that they would do that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, they would have the French mass because along with the Latin mass, because I know that they. Well, were I imagine so... the mass was Latin, but I imagine the sermon. Oh, the sermon. The sermon and uh, and announcements and things like that was in was in French. Oh, okay. That no, makes I imagine sense. Mass, yeah, mass was still in Latin. I'm, oh, okay. <laughs> I, 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 maybe I'm wrong, but I think it was. You're but, probably right. Yeah, I think it was I, still in Latin. I was just asking because I know how yeah, strict... Yeah, it sounds like I, that they were just stated in French. I yeah. think it was in Latin. Because I know how strict they were yeah, it was with, <laughs> with everything yeah. being in Latin. Right. I was just curious, like, what was growing up in Berwyn and going to Catholic Church there and then coming to Mantino, like, what was... Was well, there and, any, like, significant... Berwyn, uh, again, was an ethnic. Berwyn was a predominantly bohemian town. In fact, they said at one time it was the largest Czech town, second to Prague in Czechoslovakia, predominantly bohemian. And they did in Berwyn, the, uh, the church I went to, they had a mass in, in Czech, in bohemian. Uh, so that, that goes back quite a ways now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but... Uh, the interior it was different from when they first came here, mm-hmm. and saw the interior of the, of Saint Joseph. In fact, it was Saint Joseph and Berwyn when I went to too. Oh, but it was it was. I can't picture, but it was different. I can't tell you what the difference was. Of course, there was altar railings, which they don't have anymore, anything like that. But they had statues were different. I think I think here here they had Saint Joseph, and they had a uh, I forget the sister or a, a saint. Another saint they had it had something to do, I think, with the with the the nuns, and I can't think of that saint statue that was maybe uh, it's not here any longer. Here in Mantino, yeah, in Mantino. That where those statues are, I don't know. When Father Park changed changed the remodeled the church, he got rid of those old statues. There was about three or four of them of saints, but I can't remember the name of those saints. I can't. Saint Joseph was one of them. I remember that. Of course, yeah. yeah. That would, yeah, it would be interesting to find those yeah, statues it would be. Where, or, they or are, what, where they went. Or. Where they went, I have no idea. Huh. Let's talk about the um, a little more about the reconstruction of the, of the church. Do you kind of remember what was going on in the parish at the time of, of doing away with the old and bringing in the new? Of course, there was a lot of, lot of the old-timers didn't like when Father Park renewed the church. The old timers didn't like it. In fact, we lost some of the old timers because uh, he modernized it. He modernized it. I I won't mention any names, but uh, there the, it did cause some trouble there in the church at that time. How did you feel? So about well, it? I wasn't that I wasn't that old, so I, I I I didn't like it. I liked the old church, but it didn't bother me. It didn't draw draw take me away from it. Because this is in the 1980s? Yeah, I think it was in the 80s, yeah. Could be the 80s. See, my my t- timing I, is yeah. terrible. <laughs> Could be in the 80s. So do you remember there being, obviously you're talking about the old, the people that had been there for the, many yeah, years. Yeah, the old, the the old el- people. The elderly. Right. They were not happy with Particularly this. ones that were French Canadians, uh, families, you know. They didn't like it. And they, yeah, a lot they, more of the farmers were French Canadian farmers out here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They just didn't. They didn't accept it. So they just left and went to some other parishes. Some did. They didn't all do, but some did. Some did went to Saint Anne. I think they, a lot of them went to Saint Anne. 
So what what brought about this this reformation? Uh, this that's just this Father Pock. He was picked by the bishop at that time to be the to pastor there, and he was a very progressive type person. And he just took it on his own. He, uh, I wasn't on the church board. I wasn't on the church board, but not at that time. I was going to say there would have been yeah, like, there was meetings a, about this. There was and, meetings, and there were people on the board that didn't agree with him, but there were some that did agree with him. And he got his way. He got to change the church, completely remodeled it. So let's talk more about your time as a, as a deacon. How did that come about? Well, I, I, I had an ailment. Uh, I had a tumor uh, of, I think it was of a prostate, and I, I, it, it could have been cancerous. And at that time, it, 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 was, it was at the end that you died, cancer. So I, 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 when I heard that, I went to church, and I made a vow that if, if that would be non-malignant, I'd become a deacon. And when they, they took the uh, biopsy on it, it was non-malignant, I said, oh my God, I got to become a DD. So I kept <laughs> like, my, why I, did I, do that? I kept my vow. Yeah. And it wasn't easy. It was tra- traveling a lot uh, back and forth there, but I, I felt I owed, I owed God that. And, I owed, and of course, the Blessed Virgin Mary, I, she was my patron saint. Yeah. Was there anyone else in your family that has been part of the, the church in that way? As being a deacon or a priest? No, or my, my father was, wasn't Catholic. My mother was oh, okay. Catholic, but my father wasn't. They were married in the Catholic Church and everything. But my father never, although he, he, he would always, uh, during Lent, he'd always fast, and sometimes he'd go to church, but he never became a Catholic. His father was a Protestant. In fact, his father studied to be a, a Lutheran minister, so he was a Lutheran, but he never went to Lutheran church. Okay. No, but he wasn't Catholic. So before... Making that that vow, you know whether the the tumor was going to be malignant, malignant or, or right. not. Yeah. Was there there obviously would have been some interest, right? I mean, in faith or what? Yeah, just yeah, as I far as a, becoming a, a deacon, is that something that was kind well, of in the back of your mind for uh, a while? Yes, I, I I thought about that. Yes, it was in my mind, but because it was such a distance and everything, I just kept putting it off, putting it off. So that's the reason why, when I said that, that was something I was thinking about, but I had no definite plans on it. But that definitely put me to it. I always think maybe the good Lord wanted me to do that. So yeah, that's he. That's the way he got me to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he it worked, right? Yeah, it worked. <laughs> it, it worked. It worked. Um, so when you were in the process of becoming a deacon, who was, what was going on at the church at the time, and and who was a part of that? process with you? Father Wilkening was the first one was the process of with it. And then after Father Wilkening was... Uh, was it Father Mark? Was yeah, I think after? Father Mark Father Mark helped me with it, with my studies. And in, in fact, I some of the things that we were studying, I went to Father Mark, and he did help me. I'd go over to the rectory some nights, and he helped me on some of my studies. Uh, but that's the only really things I can think of that, in regards to the church. When I became a, a deacon, the Knights of Columbus bought all my books that I maybe went to study to be a deacon. They bought all these books for me. And that was for the Knights of Columbus at, at that time, which was, they were pretty expensive, so that was a great thing. 
Yeah, they're not they're not cheap. No, no, they're not cheap. So no. that I always remember that. Okay. And when <clears throat> so yeah, you became a deacon in ninety seven, that's when you were ordained. I believe it was ninety seven, yes. Yeah. And what um I used to what I did, uh I did sick calls for father. Somebody was sick. Some people were in nursing homes. I'd visit them, and I'd always I had my prayer book with me, and we would say prayers, uh, and I'd bring communion. I'd bring communion to them. So that was my job at that time to visiting the sick, and and of course I assist at mass. I assist at all the masses. I also did uh, uh, burials, some burials. I assisted at burial, uh, committals, burials. These these were some of the jobs I had as a deacon. A clip of the oral history that I recorded with Deacon Dick Balgaman in early 2019. It was actually uh, 30 minutes long. It was very fascinating, and I hope to uh, release the whole thing soon. But may uh, De- uh, Deacon Dick rest in peace. And it was um, so fascinating to see all the different artifacts he had of not only St. Joseph Church in his, in, uh, his basement at his house, but other uh, pieces of Mantino history as well. I know recently his family had an estate sale and maybe some of those things uh, have since been sold that he talked about uh, in the little clip I played for you. Now let's go ahead and uh, get back to my brother, Josh Lamore. You you were doing so much research. Yeah, I think, so. so that was right at the turn of the year. So it was either the end of 2018 or the beginning. I'm not sure which, but yes. Um, you know, I, I happened to be in Illinois for the holidays. And so as soon as, uh, the go ahead, um, was stated, I, I started combing every archive I could. I started looking at, um, all the catalog repositories I could online just to see where it was that I might want to do some more research. Um, I looked at all the archival databases I could um, and just started uh, saving and printing and documenting everything that I found. Um, And just from kind of itemizing all the things I found, I could start to kind of weave together the narrative. Um, And I could also see where um, there were major discrepancies and stories that needed to be fleshed out further. What was one of those stories? I think I, I'm in, <clears throat> let's see, which chapter am I in? Uh, I'm starting in chapter seven. So I'm right in the middle of chapter seven right now. Um, but there was something about a story from, uh, was it was it Gimo that wrote uh, one of the hist- Mantino history books? Yes, uh, that would be Virgil. Virgil. Okay, so Virgil Gimo. I think there was something that he had put in like the last history book that he had written. And I wish I could remember which chapter that was in exactly. But it sounded like it was almost like a, a correction of something that he had written. You, you know how a lot of things are. Uh, you know, a, a, a lot of a lot of stories in history are the telephone game, right? Um, so someone someone says to someone else, you know, a long time ago, did you know that, you know, uh, a priest named Father Hennepin came through these woods and 
right, right through Mantino and happened to be in the area that's now Mantino on Christmas Day. And that was the first mass ever said here. Okay, it was in the 17th century. That's what it was. That's what it was. So it, it turned out that it wasn't on Christmas, right? It it was uh, so so I I did research I found Father Hennepin's uh, uh, translations of his journals because he would have spoken French he was a French Jesuit um, or maybe and maybe Belgian uh, but French speaking anyway and he was you know um, one of the one of the first uh, uh, Europeans to um, travel through this area. Um, and he wrote a detailed account that had these beautiful illustrations in it. Um, it's published, I think in the, the middle to end of the 17th century. So the 1600s. Um, and he did talk about following the Kankakee river all the way to the Displains river. Um, so he would have been nearby, uh, and it would have been winter but it would not have been Mantino itself. And I think the discrepancy was there was no account of there being any sort of mass said that day. Um, and it was hard to pinpoint exactly which day he was in the area. Um, so it was, it was just kind of a little correction uh, as far as, you know, there's kind of this romanticized idea that this big, beautiful thing happened here specifically and precisely um, and I just kind of wanted to try to clean up some of that. Yeah. And, and it's good to do that because you sometimes wonder if some things sound too, too good to be true. Um, and uh, you're so good at research and that's something I, it sounds like going uh, to school for library science. Is that where you kind of picked up a lot of on how to properly research, right? Uh, it, it definitely helped a lot. Um, you know, all of my trials and tribulations doing research for the Cedar Breaks book. And then I was hired to do research um, to prepare for a museum in uh, southern Utah on the human history there. Um, and those two things, because, you know, it's not just finding stuff. It's pretty easy to find stuff and get copies of stuff. The problem becomes having all this stuff, but not even knowing what you have any longer and not having it organized in any sort of way. So you just got this huge, messy file cabinet or a room full of piles of all kinds of stuff, and you don't even know what you have any longer. So it's really important to figure out a process to document what you have along the way, even if you haven't read it yet. So was that what it was like for when starting the research for coming home? Oh, yes, it, that was absolutely the case. You know, figuring out, you know, first you want to figure out where might things be, um, who might have things of interest, um, you know, who are some people that I need to talk to, uh, which is why I um, added oral histories as part of as part of the work, which um, thank you, Jake, you uh, were able to interview some of those folks for me and uh, uh, get some of that information together so that then I could look at what they were saying and look and see if I could find any documentation, uh, supporting that. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, it's kind of a, it's, it's kind of a lengthy process. And then, 
then, you know, you, you finally get through everything and you start, you know, you, you write kind of as you're researching. Um, so maybe, maybe you have five different documents talking about the same event. Um, and then, and then, you know, pretty quickly you can see that maybe one of those documents has skewed things or, you know, if it's a newspaper article, especially early newspaper articles, a lot of times the spellings are just beyond comprehension as far as like people's names. Um, and then you can start to figure out where, you know, they got their information through a third party or something like that. Um, and then there's people's names that have no affiliation whatsoever with the church or what have you. Were there, can you think of any instances where you found, let's say, you know, numerous documents on a certain thing in the coming home book and all of them had different accounts? Was there anything like that? Uh, yeah, there, there were some. So, and, and on, so, you know, and always the goal is when you're writing, you know, something nonfiction is, you know, you want to, you want to also be sure to share where you're getting your information from. Um, maybe not necessarily for the uh, average reader, but you're doing that for the person 20 years from now who decides they're going to write a history book on St. Joseph's Church and uh, Our Lady Academy. Um, and so the best thing you can do is provide them a map with what you did so that, that they can see all the documents that you looked at and they can go beyond that. Yeah, uh, They can go further. They can, they can dig into the places where you still weren't sure. So one of the instances is um, there's talk of, a, of establishing a church in 1862 building a church. Um, now some accounts say that, uh, this church was built on church street, um, on the corner of church street. And I guess that would maybe be division or third kind of near the banks, maybe where that parking lot is by the banks now. Okay. Um, so several people said, you know, several people wrote that it was, uh, built there in 1962. And then, um, other accounts said that it was built in 1962 on the same grounds where the church is now. You mean 1862? Excuse me, yeah. 1862. I'm so no, sorry. No, that's okay. So, um, no, go ahead. So, so you kind of scratch your head and think, okay, well, what can I find that uh, can really more concretely point this out? And so then that's when you want to start, if you can, looking for, um, uh, you know, any anything that uh, is very factual. So, you know, land deeds or, um, you know, old deed maps or like, for instance, there's these, you know, these old maps of Mantino that uh, show who had what or what was where, um, you know, developed by um, Illinois Central. Uh, railroad or whatever the railroad was it called. Was, at that it was time. Illinois Central. It was okay. At least that's what I remember reading in the book. Um, and uh, you know they had a map that showed that little chapel um, on the the very corner of Walnut and Baker Street. There were also accounts that had that same chapel uh, built in different years or in different corners. Um, or for different congregations. Uh, there were accounts of it being built by a number of different priests. 
Um, so there's just a lot of things to flesh out. What I ended up doing was, uh, through some of the, the, the Joliet, uh, Catholic diocese and the Chicago Catholic diocese have archives. And I was able to get copies of all of the deeds of purchases, sales, trades, and what have you, um, for all the various pieces of land. And, um, there was a lot there to support that, um, the chapel would have been, um, in that corner on Walnut and Baker. Um, there were a few railroad maps that also put it there. And I felt that those were a lot more concrete than someone writing their recollections of how things were or their recollections of their grandparents' recollections kind of deal down the line. Um, so eventually I settled on uh, it, it being at Walnut and Baker uh, in 1862. And there's still a mystery, though, as to whether or not there was even a smaller chapel at some point on Church Street. And it very well could be that there there was, but I have not found anything that uh, can concretely support that. And that was, a, speaking of things being concrete, something that you and I uh, grew up being told, and it's in the book as well, is that the the first place that uh, the Catholics in Mantino would get together and, and have mass, have church, uh, was a, a log cabin that was on our uh, family's property of uh, Franklin and Anna Weber, who own it present day, which is on uh, Birch Street. Now, is there actually any documentation s- stating it was right there on that piece of property, or was that something that was passed down or just written from someone i so uh first of all it next time you you're out at that empty lot and you can say where that lot is um what is that intersection well oh it's it's a birch and jan drive right yeah, I guess so. I just couldn't remember the street. But, yeah, well, there. I mean, it's not. It, it's it's at least the it's it's that empty lot that's right across the street from. Well, it's on Birch, but it's right across the street from Jan Drive in Mantino. At least I think it was in that empty lot that you were referring yeah. to in the book, right? And and there is an indentation where you can almost see where where the cabin might have been, and I've heard that by several people, but the. The document that uh, led me to trust it um, is this uh, atlas. It's it's a uh, Kankakee County atlas that has these really beautiful uh, line drawing architecture illustrations of of various places in in Mantino and Kankakee County. It has these detailed maps, and then they have detailed histories of various things in the book. And in this, this book was published in, I believe it was 1879 or, or something to that effect. And, um, it, it wrote out basically, uh, that account that I lay out there, um, including the first members, um, and including the first, uh, baptism and the first marriage. And I was able to verify that first baptism, um, and one of the baptismal books at the Catholic Church that it indeed was uh, 
that July day in uh, 1855, I think it was. We'll continue with my brother Josh in just a moment. Right now, I'm going to get to one of the next oral histories that I recorded for my brother while he was doing research for the Coming Home book um, with actually our grandparents. Uh, My brother and I were able to sit down with Franklin and Anna Weber uh, to talk about uh, not only my grandfather's uh, life in printing, uh, because at the time my, my brother was helping Franklin write his memoir. Um, but both Franklin and Ann Weber were students of Our Lady Academy, and they kind of give us an insight to what uh, the daily life was like at as a student at Our Lady Academy at St. Joseph Church in Mantino. My grandmother, Ann, was actually a boarder there in high school. It was line up and shut up. <laughs> Wasn't it? Yeah, when you'd line up in the John morning Phillip to go to class or at noon to go to class, you'd, <laughs> you'd, you'd get lined up and they want you, you're supposed to stay quiet, and most everybody did. And tell them about the music. We had real good music. It was John oh. Philip Susan March. Oh, yeah. They played music <laughs> when we went up the stairs, you know. Uh, I don't remember what kind of music it was. But Philip Susan. Oh, Su- oh Susan music, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. And we all go up the stairs. That'd keep you quiet, you know. You'd listen to the music. So, describe what what did the music sound like, though? Oh, it sounded good. It was just well, a re- or just a record. You know, Job, they're like marches. They're like. Real. I was gonna say, was it a, like a march? Yeah. Like, it could have been. I don't remember music. that. <laughs> okay, that that's what I meant by like describe. And see that, that, that and, and I remember that and seventh uh, and eighth grade a lot, and Mother Catherine. She was the principal, and she'd be watching, playing that record, you know, as the kids were going up the stairs. And, and all the while, I was in those last two grades, I think, maybe sixth grade, I'm not sure. She called me Benjamin, for Benjamin Franklin. Is that right? The father of printing. <laughs> oh, yeah, she called me that all the time. So back to grade school, though, I mean, it was small, right? How many in your class? Oh, probably with at the two classes, probably forty for the one teacher. Oh, she teaches the fifth, say the fifth graders. She teach them arithmetic or something like that, and have you do some work after that. Then she'd go over to the sixth graders, and they'd be, she'd be working with them on some other things. You think there was that many? Yeah, I would say so. I have no idea. It was about. Six rows of uh, desks, and about eight or ten or more seats going back. Oh my, that was a lot, wasn't it? Yeah, but they handled them all right. They, <laughs> if somebody got out of line, you went up to their desk, and she got a ruler out and slapped her hands. Mm. So, so what was what was the teaching like? How how would how would they do it? Do you remember what a lesson might kind of feel like or how they might conduct it? Well, I don't know, but I know each Monday she put all the lessons on the board for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the things that you had to do that, that week to, to be studying on. And then you, whatever class she picked out first, why you do that uh, work, some, certain parts of that Monday work you'd start out with and you work on that and 
that subject, then she'd go over to the other class for their Monday work and uh, do their thing, and she'd go back and forth. They were, pre they were pretty good teachers, and they also had some lay people in there, a couple of lay ladies. Not when I was there. Mrs. White was there, and I don't know what the name of the other lady was. I forgot. Sounds kind of like a one-room schoolhouse. Yeah, but it was better than that, I think. It was a nice new building. Uh, boy, those those women were, were so dedicated, uh, like the ones that taught me high school. Uh, two of them would uh, be dis. One of them was very good disciplinarian. She just passed away, but she was like a mother to all of us. So this is after hours. And then when it came time to sleep, I'll be damned they didn't sleep with us. You know, they were monitoring us all the time. So they didn't sleep at night? They were, oh, they slept with you to... In the, the same room. And we had open beds and they had a curtain around theirs. But yeah, they were constantly with us. And if they heard some kids whispering weather, they'd tell them to shut up. Come around and see what you're whispering about. Yeah. One time I was scratching my head and they wanted to know what that noise was. You know, came over to see me. <laughs> <laughs> that's really getting. Yeah, that's pretty personal. Yeah. You never stayed. You never stayed there, right, no. Papa? You always. I went home every night. Every it was night. only. It was only uh, girls. The borders. Right? No, boys. they had boys till eighth grade. Oh, boys, they did have boys. boys and girls yeah, in grade yeah. school. Borders. No, borders though. Borders yeah. were only girls, right? No. no. Boys. Boys were borders too. Yep. I don't remember, remember who the devil the boarders were. I'd have to look up for eighth grade. When I came in as a freshman, I paid no attention to them. Had enough of my own access, I guess. I don't know. So uh, how did religion play in, into the mix? With That was one of our classes. It was one of your classes. I mean, did you have to... Were there certain times that you prayed or went to chapel as well as school? Well, once in a while there'd be something going on, we go to chapel. Chapel was cute. But you prayed all the time. You prayed in the morning, you prayed at noon, you prayed at night. Yeah, you'd say a prayer when you come to school in the morning. When you got into class, you'd stand up and say a prayer. And probably uh, at noon when you came Pledge in, of you'd too. say a prayer. I know nothing special, but it was a prayer. They had some neat prayers. You guys don't remember any prayers? Not really. Oh, yeah, well, we can't recite them for you, but I could find some, I guess. Were they in Latin? No. No? No. But Just they the taught you Latin uh, some of the time, especially the boys, if they had to be altar boys. Uh -huh. You had to know Latin because everything was in Latin at church. Right. Elmira and, and one of her friends took Latin in high school one year. Can't imagine. Why the hell a dead language? Anyway, they didn't. I never learned Latin, and I only served Mass once and I was up there on the side altar and, and uh, somebody didn't show up that morning so then I had to uh, serve with somebody else, there's two of us, and I didn't know Latin. Father it sits in the middle there, you know, and you got altar boy on each side and he says some words, then you got to say something in Latin and I, I didn't know that so I only was altar boy once because I never took to learning Latin. It still cracks me up that <laughs> that they played uh, marching music for uh, kids to march into school to. That's <laughs> that's something you don't hear about anymore. Uh, my grandparents, Franklin and Anna Weber, uh, getting their take on what it was like being students at Our Lady Academy. Uh, that was a recording from 2019. Now we'll get back to my brother Josh. Josh. 
Going back to uh, that early time that we've been talking about, too, with, with some of the first buildings that were used to hold Catholic masses in Mantino, I don't think I ever heard that story about the, the what was the, the Presbyterian's uh, minister's wife? And it, I believe it was she was Presbyterian, and she had donated money to the uh, the Catholics in Mantino to help uh, them liquidate their debt so they could actually build a legitimate church. And her husband did not like that and had her committed. Right. Uh, it sounds like there were several things. Um, let me let me find her name real yeah, quick. I, I, I should have wrote down her name. I think it's Parker or Packer. Um, so, so the interesting thing about this story is Packard, Packard, Packard. Mrs. Packard, yes. Mrs. Packard. I first found out about Mrs. So Mrs. Packard was, uh, you know, nationally famous in her day after being institutionalized. Um, but then, you know, after that era, you know, basically she created a lot of the reforms, um, to, uh, specifically women getting uh, put in asylums uh, by their husbands um, because the, the, the woman had no power to get out of it themselves, unfortunately. It is really tragic. I ended up learning about this story in Boston at a musical. Really? In Boston at a musical, which happened to take place in a little weird town in Illinois called Mantino. Now I think I remember you briefly talking about about this before. But see, you got to understand, uh, both of us uh, talking about this might not recollect certain things because, as we said, Josh started researching this, you know, two or three years ago. So it, it's been it's been some time. So he's not going to remember everything right off the bat, and neither am I. Um, but yeah, Ms. Uh, Elizabeth was her first name, um, and it, she was from the Presbyterian Church, and this was in 1857. So, so the this story was in this musical about. Did it start? The musical was all about her because that's how famous she was. I mean, um, so when she finally got out, um, she was at, able to advocate for all kinds of reform in mental health institutions, um, and, uh, in the way that, uh, women were treated. Yeah. Um, she, I, I don't think she was a suffragist herself, but, um, was very much kind of, uh, in that wavelength in just a little bit of a different way. Um, you know, I mean, you know, president Grant met with her a time or two, um, so, I mean, she was she was a, a big deal after all this uh, took place. And so this this musical was actually about her. Okay. Um, so if I mention Mantino, um, if anyone knows anything about it on the East Coast or about the town, they're probably going to know about Elizabeth Packard, who is getting uh, more attention now than she has for a long time. Yeah. That's just mind blowing. There's just so many, you know, being seven chapters into this book, 
And what I what I love about how this book starts, and I'm sure the I'm just guessing the the rest of the book is is kind of like this is that I feel like, and I don't have this experience because, like you, I grew up in the parish of St. Joseph in Mantino. So, you know, kind of learning about this stuff is extra cool because of of growing up and going to church there. But I feel like someone that has was not even remotely uh, close to being Catholic or someone that didn't even go to St. Joseph or anything like that will find uh, this book very fascinating because it actually... Um, it kind of pulls in so much information just from the area. And I love that's how it starts out. It gives a, uh, you give a really good uh, preface of what Mantino was like before it was Mantino. Um, and I think uh, I, I encourage people that have no interest in Catholicism or religion or, or just that, like I said, denomination to, to uh, give it a read because there's a lot of historical content in here, like Mrs. Packard, you know? Right. I mean, you know, I mean, so much time has gone by since those, those earliest of days that sometimes we forget, um, you know, that there were people here before us Europeans. Um, you know, every once in a while I see, uh, slip ups in brochures where, um, you know, in the area where, you know, it is sometimes the Potawatomi aren't even mentioned in it. You know, it happened to be an important place to them or, or, um, instead of talking about how the Potawatomi loved this land and, and really didn't want to go, um, that they were forced out. Sometimes you'll read in, I, I, you know, I, a few, one of the reasons I included it was I, I read uh, a very prominent brochure from the area, um, from the Kankakee County area that, uh, said, uh, when the Potawatomi decided they no longer, no longer wanted to live here and left, um, <laughs> which just absolutely isn't true. And it was, it was from one of the major, uh, park areas, uh, within the County, um, you know, we just have to pay attention to that stuff because we made some big mistakes there. Mm -hmm. um, our people did in the past. And it, it's, you know, it's, it's worth, it's worth thinking about the fact that, um, Mr. Bourbonnet, I can't remember what his first name Francois. is, is not buried. Francois, he is not buried here. He is buried on a reservation, uh, in either Kansas or Oklahoma. Uh, Montano, um, too is buried in either, uh, Oklahoma or Kansas, um, all these namesakes, all these people, um, that very much contributed, not Montano so much, but, uh, Bourbonnet, um, who was Matisse. So, uh, part French, part Potawatomi or, um, some other Algonquin speaking, uh, tribe. Um, they left this place that they contributed and made possible for, uh, Europeans uh, not of their own free will. Uh, that's really worth thinking about. And and that's why it absolutely had to be included. Yeah. And I'm glad you included that because bef before, um, I, I feel like the, the mixture of French Canadian and uh, Potawatomi 
I, I, I don't, it hasn't really been talked about how they were kind of forced out as well. The ones that were both of, of both, uh, race races, you know, uh, they weren't, uh, pure to one or the other, but they were both and it, it they weren't, uh, well received either. Um, from what it seems like, because they're, they were being pushed out at that time of the, the Treaty of, of Tippecanoe. Um, I always forget about uh, the, the Miami as well. Um, I always think of Potawatomi, but uh, there were Mi- a Miami tribe here as well, correct? Yeah, the, there, were, there, were several, there were several tribes. I think they were all uh, you know, of, of uh, Algonquin-speaking dialects, so they were all kind of uh, connected and related in, in one way or another. But, you know, I mean, you know, the Treaty of uh, Timbuktu was a result of uh, wars that were being fought in the area uh, with other Algonquin-speaking tribes that were part of the, the, the greater collective uh, of the Potawatomi, even in this area. Um, something I read uh, several times, um, I'm trying to think of the local author's name, he, he actually went, he actually went to, uh, uh, the reservations and, and did some research. I think he may have passed recently, this guy. Uh, I think his first name is Vic. Um, Vic Johnson. Is his last name Johnson? Yeah. He wrote a lot of books and, uh, did a lot of publishing. Yes. So, um, he, he says that, uh, that, that the Mati folks, uh, which would be the 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 French Potawatomi mix, um, they were they were always seen as kind of leaders because you know they they represented both cultures. They always took on these leadership roles, um, but you know a little after a lot of the French Canadian folks started coming along, more of of the uh, Anglo Saxon folks who had a little bit more power and were a little bit more aggressive and influential. Um, they were supposedly the ones who pushed them out of the area um, because, you know, they kind of created a hierarchy in which they weren't on top um, is, is, is kind of the very general understanding I have of it or some version of that. They were no longer welcome and they, they were the people no longer wanted those people to be seen as leaders uh, to the community. So they were also forced out. Okay. Yeah, that's something I I didn't realize as well. Um and like I said this is just all uh, everything that just kind of leads up to um you know St. Joseph Church and and everything surrounding it. Um so going on from uh from there um and it's so I, there's there's just so much in here and it's hard to to pick a place um to start but I love how you 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 tie in the the local the other uh, Catholic uh, diocese or Catholic parishes in the area. You tie those in well and kind of give their cool backstory, uh, like you know Saint Rose in Kankakee, obviously uh, maternity BVM in Bourbonnais, um, tying those in well. I always forget that there was the Notre Dame Academy attached to Saint Rose in Kankakee. Um, so, uh, what, what was, what was something that you were surprised to find when you were doing your research about the St. Joseph 
parish in general, not even necessarily uh, the building. Those early priests, they they were uh, industrious, to, to say the least. I mean, they were everywhere. Um, you know, I mean, many of, of, of the uh, early early priests established parishes and built um, uh, mission churches uh, all over the United States uh, within, within their short lifetimes, often short lifetimes. I mean, some of them, you know, 12 and 20 churches before they even got to Mantino and helped with either one of the chapels or one of the big churches here. Um, and, you know, I, you know, what I learned is how connected um, that early history uh, of the Catholic Church, um, how connected those early priests and so forth are to the larger history of the United States. Uh, you know, for instance, um, you know, the first priest to ever be ordained in the United States in Baltimore um, at, at one point was one of the first priests to come and speak here um, in this area when it was just a it wasn't even a village at that point. Um, so a lot of things like that, uh, you know, uh, finding out that, um, you know, one of the priests that did some of the work here in this area also called his home Kentucky and, and owned slaves, um, or, uh, another priest who, um, uh, after the treaty of Tippecanoe, when, when, uh, you know, there were the, the different, uh, mass exoduses of, uh, the Potawatomi heading off. Um, those priests were, uh, traveling with them, trying to convert them to Christianity. Uh, you know, I mean, wow. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I don't know how I feel about that, but <laughs> it's interesting how connected it all is on a much larger scale than our County. Yeah. But that's, that's what I like about this book. It, it really sets that tone and really spreads those roots across the whole country, the whole world, it seems like. Um, another story that I loved, and I feel like we could always use more of this, and, and it's just in any context, was that, was talking about how when, uh, was it Labrie? He, yeah. Okay, like uh, Labrie was really trying hard to get money together to, to actually build a legitimate church. Uh, a legitimate Catholic church in Mantino. And you reference, uh, I think, a, a couple different times, at least once, but a couple different times. I guess I touched on it a little bit. But different members of the community uh, would uh, donate to that cause, even if they weren't Catholic or even if they weren't religious, everyone came together to help. And I think we all need, we always need more of that mindset of to you know together togetherness no matter what you believe in and i i liked there was there was that in the book yeah you know mantino especially and i found so many documents um you know you know i think even the atlas uh from the 1870s acknowledged this so many documents that that were just blown away with with how uh, the Methodists, uh, Protestants, and Catholics worked together in Mantino and supported each other. Um, 
it's just, tr- it's just, uh, it was just really tremendous. And I wish I would have found more evidence of that in the early days. Um, I wish I would have found more evidence of that, um, when they were building what they call the mammoth church, which was a large wood church, bigger than the one that's in Mantino now that was, uh, double spired, had two bell towers. Um, and when it burned down in 1899, everyone, it, not in just Mantino, but in Kankakee County and, and, and probably just a little bit over the border in Will County, all came to contribute whatever they could. I read accounts of people who the only thing they could do was contribute produce from their farms. They could contribute that produce and then someone else could not have to work that day because they could get the produce to bring home instead and could then work on, on the church. whatever needed to be done at the church, for instance. Okay. Um, or, or, you know, I mean, uh, you know, all that brick was hauled by, by horse and wagon by, you know, all kinds of local people. I'm not sure if they were all from Mantino, but even our great, great grandfather, uh, was a part of that wagon train that, that took all of that brick and brought it all the way from moments uh, to Mantino. Um, everyone contributed whatever they could. It did not matter, uh, whether they were Catholic or not. And I think that same, uh, that reciprocal atmosphere worked, you know, in all three different ways. Um, I, I only mostly know about, uh, the Catholic account of it, but, um, it's just really beautiful because the idea was that, you know, no matter which one of these belief systems you're following, um, you know, it, it creates for a more, uh, integral, um, a sustainable community, uh, that's healthy. Um, so everyone was on board with that. And instead of not getting along, like is the case so often in that era, uh, they got along really well take another break from my brother Josh for a moment and play the uh, third oral history that I have for you, which is yet again about experiences at Our Lady Academy, which was the school that existed at St. Joseph Church in Mantino. Uh, someone who was a student there, another, st- obviously there was many students there over the years, but one that I got to sit down with in early 2019 was Elmira Wilkie who lives in Rockville Township, uh, just west of Mantino. And she gave a very uh, interesting and a a very descriptive description of what the buildings were like at Our Lady Academy and also what playground life was like. This was the, the oral history I did with Elmira, I think actually went for about two hours long, and it's just full of great stories about her experience being a student there. But obviously, this is just a a shorter clip for you with Elmira. Can you kind of remember what the school looked like? Just kind of like a description of the different rooms, the outside, the inside, just kind of like an overview. If you kind of remember anything that kind of sticks out in your mind about the description of of the school, school yeah. Our Lady Academy. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, it was an imposing, an imposing school. Um, the first one, of course, was built in that French architectural style with the mansard roof, and it had a, a long 
double-wide sidewalk down to the sidewalk that ran parallel with Main Street and ran parallel with the Illinois Central Railroad. Um, that was the initial building that the Servants of the Holy Heart of Mary erected, and it had the chapel, and it had the dormitories for the boys. It had a something called a refectory. How about that old-fashioned name? You sat down at the long tables and ate your meals and behaved yourself. And <laughs> if you didn't, the nuns were there to remind you about how to how to eat and conduct yourself. They were an amazing group of women. Um, the chapel was very beautiful. It was it was not Gothic, which is interesting because the French love the Gothic style of altars and. Uh, if you are familiar with some of the remaining churches, like in St. Anne, uh, the church is French Gothic and so forth. Okay. Um, the why, yes. why do you think um, it didn't have that Gothic look? Well, I'm not so sure why the chapel didn't. I, I'm not sure about that. It might have been simply the space available in that for, that, for the chapel itself. It was quite mm -hmm. small, very okay. narrow, very small. Okay. However, of course, the church itself did, and uh, mm -hmm. it created quite a controversy later on when there was uh, the, the change, the modernization of the church. As far as the academy building, what we knew as the academy building, that was very contemporary. It, it represented a contemporary type of building for its time, and um, it had the dormitories uh, that, uh, that were the girls' side of things. Uh, the playground had a boys' playground, the girls' playground, and never the twain shall meet. If you were a girl, you didn't stray over to the boys' side. If you were a boy, you didn't stray over to the girls' side. They were that strict even oh, with, oh, yes, with very playing much. At, at, at recess? Oh, uh, oh, absolutely. Yes, we girls were able to play our games, hopscotch and... Uh, jump rope and walk round and round and round in the circular circular uh, sidewalk area where the statue of the Sacred Heart was in the center part and gorgeous landscaping and and the boys had just you know a, a rough uh, a rough gravel playground <laughs> and uh, they had they had uh, monkey bars and they had an ocean wave and it was one wild ride nothing today would would come anywhere close to what the ocean wave was. You could get killed on it. You could break an arm. The boys loved to get on it and get the darn thing going as fast as they could, jump on, stand up, bang it up against the central post, and and just, you know, they, they were wild Indians. Well, what exactly was an ocean wave? An ocean wave was a central pillar, very large, heavy-duty iron post in the middle, and then a kind of uh, a circular platform of wooden benches, and then iron rods holding this teepee like this pyramidal shaped uh, metal bars coming down to the the seats around the uh, at the bottom, and it was heavy duty. Uh, you'd have to be a pretty strong kid, so there'd usually be two or three kids that would get going and and you know just get get themselves going as fast as they could like wild ponies and get that thing ripping along and then they'd <laughs> climb on and you'd hear it go bang 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 as it banged up against the side of that the, central pole. Mm -hmm. Ah yes, I can see that. I can see it now. <laughs> <laughs> we girls were very much afraid of it, 
and uh, so forth and so on. But anyway, the building, um, the modern building, was uh, absolutely accommodating for all the needs that uh, the school had in its educational op opportunity for young people and boarders. It, it contained everything they needed and um, had a bookstore. It had the various levels. Um, in the days of no pollution and nobody jumping out of windows, if you were a, a boarder, the windows were opened uh, so that you'd get wonderful ventilation. I was always amazed at that, that there were no screens on the windows up at the top of that building, and the windows were quite large. One of the characteristics uh, that Mantino enjoyed from the presence of the church, besides the opportunity for day students and border students, was the fact that the Angelus was rung, the bell announcing Six o'clock in the morning, noon, and six o'clock in the evening. It was kind of like Mantino's clock for those three divisions of the day. And uh, that's still, of course, kind of a European trait. And it's a wonderful one. I've been in Germany. I've been in France, various places in Europe. And they still ring the Angelus, which was the angel announcing and Mary accepting that she would be the mother of God. That's what it relates to, Angelus, the Latin word. And so Mantino um, had this very special place, this kind of separate world where you sat in these, uh, these old-fashioned desks. They are now, you know, collectible items. And um, we had inkwells with ink pens and real ink and pointed little ink pens that could stab you, and I think some of the kids occasionally stab one another as jokes or meanness, and you had to learn to write with these. And, of course, the ink, one little false movement, and the ink splattered all over, and we generally had inky fingers. But I'm telling you about the school, and you really wanted to know, I think, more about the church. <laughs> well, it's interesting to hear about these other things, okay, too. Okay. Any, any kind of detail like that is, is perfect. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So well, please. we had what was traditional in public schools, too. We had uh, a picture of, of George Washington and a picture of Lincoln in a, every classroom. And um, the, uh, <laughs> the heaters, the old steam heaters, had pans on the ends of them in the wintertime so that moisture could be brought through you know, the atmosphere. Uh, so they did think of that for us. Um, there was always a closet. There was always a broom and a dustpan. You could offer to help uh, if you wanted wanted to after school. Usually in grade school, they'd let you sweep the floor, sweep the desk. You could dust. You could clean chalkboards. You could have the fun of going out and cleaning er erasers, clapping them together so that this, the chalk dust would dissipate, mm -hmm. things like that. And they shared that experience with the public school kids, too. The boarders were absolutely marvelous when they depart for and re depart for their holidays. You'd see this whole parade of nuns dressed in some winter clothing, on top of their habits, conducting the kids to the uh, depot in Mantino to go home for Thanksgiving and Christmas. It was a wonderful parade down Main Street. It was almost like an event, <laughs> and uh, you'd see the kids board the train and away they'd go. And I remember we day students would sometimes follow in the parade just because it was exciting to see the steam trains come in and that whole experience of, of a steam train stopping at the depot. And, of course, the 
The trains were constant. We'd be in church at mass and father would have to quit the sermon. The whole church would go dead because you'd feel the vibration. Uh, I actually feel the vibration of those wonderful steam trains, those engines. And Mantina was regulated then by the sound of the of the the sirens, um, not the sirens. What do we call them on the steam locomotives? What do we call them? Not the sirens. Oh, uh, whistle. Uh, whistle. Yeah, yes, the whistle. whistle. Yeah. The whistle regulated our our day, our twenty four hours, because you'd get accustomed to the whistle of particular trains. You'd know the difference between the green diamond. Uh, you know, uh, the the fancy passenger train and the you know the 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 other kind of trains and and so between the the bells from the church and the train whistles, uh, we we were a, a town that kind of didn't require watches. You know, oh that's the oh yeah that train yeah yeah you just I'd hear you know people say, oh well just just went by and so forth yeah. And well, with the bells too, that would definitely Absolutely. signify yes. what time of day That's it right. was. You know, it's your beginning, your middle, your end. Very true. Much. Yeah. I know, as a kid, if I was, uh, uh, you know, dragging along home, talking to my friends, or, or playing a bit late, and when I heard that six o'clock Angelus bell, whew, did I hoof it to get home because yeah. I had five blocks to walk, and I knew I was running late. You get in trouble. I would assume. <laughs> yes, mother would be wondering, you know, what had detained me. However, Mantino was a very safe town, mm-hmm. very safe. A clip of uh, Elmira Wilkie when I uh, recorded an oral history with her in early 2019 uh, to help my brother do research for the Coming Home book, the story of Mantino St. Joseph Church and Our Lady Academy. We will now get back to my brother Josh Lamore once again. The bell tower uh, really needs help, and I know that's something we wanted to bring attention to, uh, was the uh, St. Joseph Parish is, is trying to gather that money to rebuild that tower. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're very much uh, uh, trying to uh, come up with a plan to uh, start uh, generating funds for that. And, you know, that all happened after... Um, I started doing research, but uh, once that did happen, um, you know, it seemed it seemed really important to highlight how our churches are, um, you know, very much the center of uh, our community. I mean, the health of the churches is, you know, the health of the community and not always just in a spiritual way. I mean, if somebody needs help, whether it's financial help, food help, whatever kind of help, they're probably going to go to the police station, the fire station, and one or several of the local churches. You know, the churches are community centers. And I think that that's something you can find no matter what era of history you're talking about. I think it's really relevant now. I think, you know, churches get used for all kinds of other things besides uh, uh, their spiritual practice. And I think that's going to continue to be the case. So, um you know, bringing attention attention to how central they are as pillars to the community, and how no matter what it is you believe or think, you're part of the community, and you you have to work together because the uh, unhealth of one is is the unhealth of the entire community, so to speak. Um, Absolutely, yeah. and and the way when uh, when you first open up this book and you go. 
uh, I, I don't know if this is, they call this a preface or an introduction. Um, yes. But you, the- you, yeah, you put it so, uh, so beautifully. Um, and I guess I never really thought about it before. I, I kind of taken it for granted, you know, growing up and, and spending literally most of my life in Mantino. Um, you, you know, you write, it has often been said that if you find yourself lost in Mantino, all you have to do is look to St. Joseph's steeple. And, and it says, prominently standing above the village trees, rooftops, and surrounding countryside. And that just spoke volumes with me. And, and so did uh, something my coworker uh, said the other day. He's like, it, it, the town doesn't look the same without that steeple up. He says it looks so strange. You know, because that's you can see that from from far from very far away. Right. And and I don't I don't know if you will remember this, but I kind of remember it a little. Um, You know, the bells used to ring, you know, six, six a.m. I think it was and at uh, noon and then at five or six p.m. Yes, I remember that. Or and it was so weird when that stopped happening. And so many old timers that I've talked to or heard talking about various things over the years talked about um, how they didn't have timepieces with them when they were in the fields. Um, they relied on those bells to know, oh, well, it must be lunchtime now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, um, you know, I would hear accounts um, about, uh, you know, the bell tolling out a death. Yes. Uh, and as soon as the tolling would start, everyone would stop what they were doing dead because they would want to listen to how many tolls it was to figure out if it was a male or a female so that they could then start to think about who it could possibly be, you know, was somebody sick or, or whatever. Um, I remember when I was an altar boy at St. Joe's and I want to say it must've been, it was father Ed, I think was the pastor at the time. And the bell tower was remote controlled. He gave me the remote to control when to hit it for, this was for a, a funeral. He had me uh, hit the button for the death uh, toll of the bell. Um, and I remember that. Um, and it seems so strange to me that's how the bell system <laughs> worked was with a remote control. But I, uh, I do remember doing that. Yeah, I think, and, and you know, that, that bell would ring for anyone's death. I mean, yeah, yes. Every, everyone heard that time, you know, you know, the, everyone knew when it was noon, it, you know, it, it went far beyond, uh, you know, it went far beyond any sort of belief system. Um, you know, it really, it really served the community. It's, it was, it's like a radio news broadcast that, uh, you don't need a device to listen to. It's just there. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and it, you know, it, it, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people talk about finding their way back to Mantino or a certain part of Mantino by looking up to the, to the horizon to, uh, find that steeple. Um, so really it is, it is a loss of a community beacon, uh, more so than it is uh, a loss of any sort of spiritual beacon. Yeah, it it really is. I feel at this point it is more of a community thing than really just the community inside the church. It's it's the whole 
area. It's all of Mantino. So I, I hope that that togetherness that's talked about as some examples in the coming home book, uh, kind of resonates with different people outside of the Catholic church to, to, uh, dive in and, and, uh, help get that, that steeple rebuilt. Absolutely. And, uh, I mean, uh, a lot of folks who've, who've got generations and generations in the area might be surprised to find that, uh, someone someone in their family line helped contribute to the building of that tower in the first place yeah um and i'm sure i didn't get everyone i know i didn't get everyone's name but um you know i i'm sure it wouldn't take much for people to start looking through you know their own genealogy resources and whatever else to say aha yes sure enough my my family member did contribute to that um so you know it's 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 uh, a loss of a legacy for many people who don't even necessarily know that they lost part of their legacy. Yeah. Well, even some of the the names that you mentioned from early on and, and trying to get the parish up and running, I think one of the names I recognize that's still in Mantino was Greasy. Um, that name is, is still a well-known name in Mantino. And to see that name uh, uh, up from from the early days, I can't remember... Uh, what the first name of the greasy was, but you know, to see that name was like, oh wow, you know, this this really goes far back. Um, I'm trying to remember some of the other uh, names from that. <clears throat> excuse me, from that time. Yeah. Um, um, oh, here we go, Langlois. Langlois. There, there's another an- one, Langlois. Yeah. Um, Longton. Mm-hmm. Butler. Pepin. Yeah, Pepin. Yeah. So, you know, I've I've definitely have met some of the you know, of of the people that are alive today in the community that are most likely tied to the names in this book. So, it's uh it's just cool to it's cool to see that. Yeah, and I think even Labrie who shows up a lot because he was so uh integral and uh Building, building uh, the Mantino Parish, which took a very, a very long time for uh, Mantino to be recognized as a parish. It was just a mission for a long time, where a priest would only visit, you know, once every month, and then everyone from Mantino would have to travel horse and buggy quite far just for that uh, Sunday mass. Um, the Labrie family, I think, still probably have family uh, in moments. Okay. I've definitely heard the name before, but I'm not sure if it's because it's so prominently attached to the early days of St. Joe or if it's just because it's uh, the name is still prominent in the area today, but it sounds like it is. So, Yeah, I, I, I get the feeling that there are still s- some Labris and Moments. Most of them did, did head to South Dakota. Um, uh, but uh, I, I, well, and Joseph Labrie even fought in the Civil War. I mean, he just kind of did everything. He was the first lawyer to the town. He worked in the first grocery store, uh, was the first postmaster, um, sold Osage orange trees to make uh, hedgerows, yeah. <laughs> apple trees. I mean, uh, yeah, it's just like, oh, so, so all these things might 
in some way be a result of him, huh? Yeah, it, it kind of sounded like it, you know. So um, anything else in the, the book that really uh, – I'm obviously one of the big things I do want to mention, and um, people will, will hear about this uh, throughout this episode already uh, if you haven't heard it. But another big thing was Our Lady Academy. I mean, that's just in itself – that's a whole nother thing we could talk about forever and ever, but um, that was a, a very, that that's something that is romanticized a lot in our parish um, over the years. Yeah, and a lot of very prominent, successful uh, people in the world uh, came out of the academy uh, that are, you know, extremely inf- influential, uh, in some cases on a global level. Uh, a year ago, I, I, I met up um, with someone here in New York uh, who uh, our grandmother knows. Um, she went to school with her. Um, her last name is uh, Johnny, Virginia Dijani. Um, and she is, uh, she was, um, gosh, I think she was the director of the Academy of Arts and Letters, which is one of the most uh, uh, prestigious uh, uh honor society type clubs that you could possibly get into. They only accept 200 members. And once they reach 200, they can't get another member until one member dies. Um, wow. And they're all very, very prominent artists. She, uh, you know, taught architecture at Oxford. Um, you know, she, she worked on several UN councils. I mean, uh, these are the kinds of people, you know, I, I think a whole lot of research could be done on where a lot of these folks ended up. Uh, you know, I think, uh, a bishop came out of that. Several priests. Um, it, it really is incredible, and and you would never know uh, today that any of that went on. So the last oral history I'm going to play for you is once again <laughs> another little snippet about Our Lady Academy. It's it's one of the most significant pieces of uh, the St. Joseph Parish history, of course, is talking about the school that used to exist there. But this is uh, unlike any other story we've heard so far about Our Lady Academy. Uh, and this is the second deacon we're going to hear from. Uh, this is uh, Deacon Pete Henrissy, who not only was a deacon at St. Joseph Church in Mantino, but his family uh, was a, has been a big part of the parish for several years now, and Pete himself was also a student of Our Lady Academy and was was raised in the parish his whole life. And he has a very interesting story to tell that uh, involves spirits or ghosts, and also about how his father, who was a blacksmith, actually helped build some of the pieces inside the church eventually. After the convent shut down, after the nuns finally left in 68, yeah, is that, yeah. Um, uh, then the, the convent was, was used for CCD purposes for a while. And one, one or two years there, I was a janitor. And, uh, um, uh, it's uh, interesting. The, I, I, would, I would always go by at night and, and, and make certain everything was okay. And this one particular night, I saw a light on uh, on the second floor. 
and and so I go into the convent area and go into each room, make sure there's no kids that are there having a beer party or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I get up to the second floor, and that's right where the chapel was at. And I hear some footsteps in the chapel. Then I hear some footsteps in front of me. And then I hear footsteps going up the steps, going up the stairs behind me. And those are three separate um, wooden, wooden structures. The the the, the uh, chapel and mm-hmm. the hallway and the and oh I said okay hi sister <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, so you assume yeah. it was a ghost yeah right yeah yeah yeah. yeah 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 that was that was the most the the, the the one of the weirdest things yeah that is bizarre yeah yeah right that would creep me out uh, you know, <laughs> I, I was I, I I had told the piece and so I just I I found the light that was turned on and I turned it oh off. so there was a light yeah, on. yeah there was a light yeah that, okay. that, that's a that's what prompted me to go in there to begin right with. Yeah. yeah I just wasn't sure once you got in there if you actually found. A light. Yes, yeah, yeah. You yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. To your knowledge, was there an, a sister there that passed away? I'm sure there could oh, have I'm, been I'm, in I'm that certain, time span. I'm, 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 I'm certain because, in fact, I even have a, uh, my, uh, what do you call it, the... Uh, the book that you get in the rosary for your first communion. Okay. And there was a nun that signed her name. She, evidently, she taught me first, my first communion, prepared me for that. And I don't even remember her. That was Sister Mary Agatha. And, and, uh, and, and so there were a lot of nuns that, that went in and out of, out, of, out of the convent. Sure. Yeah, I'm sure they... I don't mean left convent. I mean... Uh, I rotated mm-hmm. because uh, Saint uh, uh, Saint Pat's in in Moments was was that same order. Oh, it was. Yeah, and they had a big school and a, and a big uh, uh, big their, convent like that. Their school was much bigger. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, right. And, but but they had a convent there too, mm-hmm. and that, that 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 was also closed down. I think Beaverville was part of the same order, and then I think down in either Champaign. I forgot where the other one, where the mother house was. Mother house was up in, up in, up in St. Gauls in, in, in Chicago. Jumping back to 1960, yeah. when you're talking about okay. the, the remodeling. Mm-hmm. So when, technically that's kind of like the, the first remodel that you remember. Oh, oh, definitely, yeah. Right. And so what was done at that time? Because I know it wasn't until the 80s that mm-hmm. there was the... The big, uh, right, the right. next one. Right. But what happened? Well, what okay. did they touch I'll, I'll, in 1960? Okay, they took out the 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 the. Um, the and maybe you said this earlier. Okay, they remember. they took out the altar rail. They they took out all all those seats, and that's that's when we first got pews. And and then I believe, let's see. The altar was still back against the wall. And that didn't get moved out until about 68 or 70 after Vatican II. People um, donated things. And my dad did, too. Now, my dad being a blacksmith. Okay, what he did is he made, I, I want you to get a hold of a postcard from that time. Because I've, I've seen postcards of the, of the church with those curtains. Mm-hmm. And I know in, in the, I, in fact, at home I have a... a, a Directory of 1976, and it shows the picture of this remodeling. And what my dad did is he made out of wrought iron, 
it was ornamental iron. He made the pulpit that the priests stand in, the three kneelers that the altar servers, probably the ones that you you mm-hmm. you, you, you knelt on, and the seats for the for the which were very plain, they were just a board. Yeah. And and then, then there was a, a three three chair uh, system for the priest at, at the at the uh, in, in the very very um, a very center and and it's it's uh it's all made out of um what my dad did is he took uh like uh three quarter inch uh square iron put it in the forge heated it up put it in the lathe and started to twist it to get a uniform um, um, a design, and then he then he took like uh, uh, probably at least half inch uh, coral uh, iron rod and and bent that into a perfect circle, and then he, he then he made made designs on it. the 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 um, the symbol of the alpha and omega, the symbol of of, of Christ. All, all out of all of iron, and and welded it all together, and and then and then some of that he donated it, and and some of that he he um, uh, others wanted to purchase in order to, in order to donate. Mm-hmm. So so the, that was that the pulpit and all that the, the, the kneelers and all that, the, 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 and and then I, the, I forgot the the uh, the two person kneeler for the for the uh, wedding. When they remodeled the the church again, mm-hmm. what happened to those pieces? Did they get auctioned off? I, I don't know what happened to it, but I saved. One oh, you did get yes, one. Yes. Okay. When the weather gets good, I'm going to uh, put it outside and have you come over and take some pictures. Oh, perfect. Okay. Yes. I was going to say I would yes. hope you would have one of those yes. pieces yes. since yes. your father yes. made it. Yes. Yeah. But those were put in the I think in the garage, and I I think they were on their way out to to the scrapyard. And you and found. So, hey, that's my dad's stuff. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good. Uh-huh. Good. Right. Right. It's really touching that Pete still has those pieces, some of those pieces that his father made for uh, St. Joseph Church. I would imagine that's something you'd want to hold on to forever and ever. Now, Pete had, when I sat down with Pete in early 2019, I had, I, that yet again, that was another two-hour-long conversation, and it was really hard to pick through that whole two hours, pick through stories to share with you, because Pete Henrissy had so many great stories about uh, the Mantino St. Joseph Church and Our Lady Academy to share with you, but I was grateful uh, to have been able to to talk to Pete Henrissy about that. Uh, one last time, we will get to my brother Josh and uh, close out the rest of this episode about St. Joseph Church in Mantino. I hope you've been enjoying this so far. You know, besides uh, this book that my brother Josh has written, he also has, we touched on, uh, Beauty Beyond the Telling, which is about Cedar Breaks, Utah, the national park there. Um, Josh has spent uh, was it three, two, two seasons or three seasons? I spent uh, two seasons there, but then afterwards was hired by a museum design company here in New York to um, develop all the content uh, to go into this museum uh, in southwestern Utah. 
Um, so I just finished with that. So it kind of feels uh like three seasons <laughs> yeah i guess that's why i keep thinking three just because of all the the research and the trips back that you had to make to utah in order to to do that book so um you know if you if you read uh coming home and, and you want to hear more uh history telling by josh you can definitely pick up that book it's another great one um that you can find <clears throat> that's also at walking press dot uh, big uh if you've listened to the episode of kankakee podcast with our grandfather franklin weber uh his memoir is available there and then uh something that i always thought was really cool and this is one of the first things if not maybe it was the first thing that you or was window so window sessions is what it's called did that did you put that out before the the cedar breaks utah book or was that after it it was after actually uh it it came out about the same time uh franklin's book came out and it's a a multimedia uh artist uh book uh that has music that accompanies it so i always when i'm trying to describe it to someone i tell them it's it's like having an analog music video experience because um, the book is, is a book of photographs that have the lyrics written on them. And the way to experience it is to listen to the music and follow along within the book. Um, and along with the music are all kinds of background sounds that I captured that kind of make another level of narration along the way. It, it's a fun project. I'm really proud of the music. And it was just something that had to happen. Um, what I yeah. like about it, it's all in, it's still all one track, isn't it, too? It's not like you can skip. It's not like here, here's 10 tracks and here's the book. It's all, it's all one. And it yeah, all, like, and it all flows together. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a 25 minute travel session. Um, I mean, you, you know, you really feel like, you feel like you're listening to music and walking is what you feel like. Um, Cause you hear the music and then you hear all kinds of different background stuff uh, happening around you. And there's just these moments in which all the background sounds uh, make just the perfect accompaniment to the songs. And uh, you know, that's really what I was trying to accomplish because as you're probably hearing right now, there, there's sirens <laughs> in the background as, as uh, we're talking um, that was always how it would be when I would be working on music here and recording is there was always these street sounds. And sometimes I never wanted to record the song again because the street sounds, uh, were perfect for the song that you just never wanted to part with it. Uh, so I, I decided to create a project that was very deliberate in that effort. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I know there were times when you were working on this window sessions, book and music you were telling me yeah this i just recorded this on my phone in the subway or, or you said it wasn't just like one time though that you recorded audio on the subway you did it you said you did it for like every day or something for a long time i can't remember uh how long it was um yeah, there there are background sounds from probably about 20 states and the photographs are from maybe 80 different locations scattered throughout the United States. Um, and so there are some tracks 
which are some of my favorites where the picture is from one place, the lyric is talking about another place and the sounds are from two or three different places all together. <laughs> and they sound like, and it all feels like it was meant to all be in the same place, at least at that moment. Yeah. Cause um, I know some of it is some of the beach, uh, sounds you hear that's somewhere in California, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, in, in Los Angeles, uh, near Venice beach, it wasn't Venice beach, but, uh, near there um yeah, some of them it's recorded there so yeah I, I just remember new york and california what what are where'd you get some of the other sounds because i don't remember if if you told me uh where some of the other sounds are from yeah uh places like utah uh illinois indiana uh, massachusetts um I think there's some sounds in there from uh, Reykjavik, uh, Iceland. Um, oh, I forgot you went to Iceland. That's right. And there, there might, there might be some things in there from Spain. I mean, I, I, it's just a whole array of instances and captures. Um, and and often it wasn't deliberate. I would just say, okay, I'm going to record for the next twenty or thirty minutes and see what I capture. I just wonder. To me, that could be such a mess to edit all of that together. I have no idea how you... How did you figure out, okay, this sound goes with this part and this part goes with that part? You know, you got all these different sounds from all these different places. Yeah, it was it was a lot of material to sift through. Um, there, there's a moment in Windows Sessions where a song ends and, and, uh, there is a, uh, I can't think of the name of the instrument, but it's, it's a traditional folk instrument from China. It, it, it looks like an upright banjo. That's very small. It's got this, this drum on the bottom and a single stick with two strings and they play it with a bow. Um, it's, it's like a, a violin banjo type thing. And I, I, I'm so embarrassed they don't remember the name. But anyways... Yeah, I can't think of it. There was a one-man band player in the subway. He had a he had a suitcase that he could kick to, to make a drum sound. And he, he had some... He had a, um, a tambourine under one foot. And anyways, he was able to... He was able to kind of make a full band. So that's at the end of this song. And then all of a sudden, um, you, hear, you hear a kid uh, having this really... Um, adult-like debate with his mother um and this was just something i happened to be walking past in the middle of the night it was really really late like 11 o'clock at night or something like this and i'm walking by and and this kid is having this really deep conversation with his mother about why he should be allowed to keep this cockroach that he found oh yeah that's (laughs) right (laughs) and and, it, and it's and it's not even I, the conversation, the the tone that it takes, and the way they're talking to each other. It it isn't funny as much as it is endearing and sweet. Like they're having like this real conversation about it. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's it it I, the things the things that you walk past. And one of my hopes is that people just pay attention to the sounds around them and notice how a lot of times all those sounds mashed together make their own song without any effort at all. Yeah. I I definitely think that's what 
what uh, window sessions brings across. So when they get the book, how do they listen to the music? I can't remember. It doesn't come with, does it come with a CD or do they just have to listen to it online? I can't remember. Uh, it comes with a CD. It's also available online. And if you didn't want the book, you could just get a digital copy or you could stream it, um, for free. Uh, it's whatever you want to do. Um, I'm just happy to share it with other people. Okay. Cool. So yeah, all that stuff uh, we just talked about, it's all at walkingpress.bigcartel.com as well as uh, Coming Home, the story of Mantino St. Joseph Church and Our Lady Academy. Um, Josh, anything else? I mean, there's, I, I know we could go on forever about you know, I'm, I'm really, honestly, I am really anxious to read the rest of this book. It's had me it's had me hooked um, so far. So I'm, I'm going to read, I'm going to start reading some more of it tonight. Um, it's, uh, it's just truly fascinating how Mantino is, is connected to all these different people and places from all over the world and all over the country. Yeah, uh, it really is fascinating. And, you know, that's why I included citations for where I got all of my information from in the back of the book. Um, because a lot of these resources that I use to find this stuff, a person could easily find things out about something in the area that they're specifically interested in, or maybe something that's even connected with their families. Um, and you know, that's, that's really what this is about. It's, it's, it's about kind of, uh, sharing this information that's out there that other people could, could, uh, uh, grab a hold of if they wanted to, you know, I mean, there's, there's a really great genealogy, uh, section of the Kankakee public library on the third floor. It's definitely worth checking out. There's, uh, the Kankakee historical society and museum. I utilize them quite a bit for the archives. Of course, there's the Mantino historical society. I got a lot of things from there. Um, many of these places have, uh, you know, microfiche or microfilm of all the old newspaper reels, or at least some of them, um, and have newspapers going all the way back, you know, to the middle of the 19th century. Um, there, there are some real gems out there. Um, so if you're passionate about history or you have something that you're wanting to research in the area, um, I, I, recommend checking out those local resources okay great um anything else that you're working on or mm. what am i working <laughs> um no i'm i'm uh, actually not working on too much uh at the moment and um maybe it maybe it will stay that way i'm i'm working on a uh, a short collection of poems uh to go along with uh, some curated photographs that a few photographers are are uh, putting together, um, but for the most part, that's it. I do. I, I am working on another project. Actually, um, it's a it's a a group of very short stories that are all connected, um, and it's fully illustrated uh, by an by a really fantastic illustrator I got to know here named, uh, Kelsey Gallagher. Um, and that that book is called Breaklands, and maybe I'll release it in a year or so. We're currently looking for a publisher or maybe, uh, coming home is the last thing I ever publish, <sighs> which very much could be the case. You know, um, 
you know, uh, we uh, all have more lives to live. And I'm kind of thinking that this life for me uh, might be transitioning. Okay. Well, um, I mean, obviously, I hope you publish more, but, you know, I will understand if you don't, because obviously being your brother, I've seen you live all these different lives. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and I'm always like, man, how does he, it's like, he's really good at that. And, (laughs) and sometimes I'm like, I need to learn how to, (laughs) how to do that. You know, keep Um, an eye, keep an eye on cats. Watch how they, watch how they (laughs) fall in weird ways, but always land on their feet. You know, that must be why our family cat is still alive after all these years. I mean, our family cat, Sylvester, he was born in 2005 and it's 2021 and he's still alive getting in, you know, getting in fights with other cats and somehow coming out alive. I I don't know how that's happening, but it is. Yeah, he's he's a tough guy. Yeah, yeah, he is. Um, well, I- I do have a website, joshlamore.com. Okay. Um, there's a there's a place that you can email me. Anyone can email me if they have something they want to chat about. Um, I'm currently not on social media, uh, but that's a great way to get a hold of me is through the website. Okay, I did. Um, you I, can also find you can also find most of the um, books uh, and bookstore there if that's an easier link. joshlamore.com. Oh, okay. I didn't even know you had that, so that's perfect. Yeah joshlamore.com uh that'll be in the uh link in the uh, show notes as well um i i think that pretty much does it but just want to say thanks a lot josh and i really uh really dig in this book and i'm really glad we could talk about it and all the other uh you know books that you've put out as well so and i think there's probably even others we didn't even talk about i feel like there's one other one where you had a short story or maybe there were a couple others that you had short stories in, right? Yeah, there, there, there's several, there's several things, uh, that I've done and several projects I've, I've been a part of. Um, I, I looked back the other day cause I've been filling out uh, job applications and things and just got exhausted looking <laughs> at all that I've done. Um, which is which is why it's time for a different life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's understandable. But uh, and thanks for letting me be a part of it too. Those uh, those oral histories you had me record, they were a lot of fun to do. And that actually, um, I wanted to make sure to thank you for that because I, I honestly had no idea that I was going to be using them for this podcast, and I never thought, I, I didn't think at that time that I would be doing this podcast, uh, you know, Kankakee podcast about the people and places of, of Kankakee County. Um, and I think that actually kind of doing those oral histories for you kind of, that actually kind of sparked doing this and I'm absolutely loving it. Um, cause just getting to sit down with, um, you know, with, with Dick Balgaman and, um, you know, Pete Henrissey and, and just hearing these stories, hearing their life stories was just super fascinating. Um, and Elmira too, you know, she had so many good stories about Our Lady Academy being a border there and everything. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that's what really helped shape this up for me. So I have you to thank for that once again. My pleasure. (laughs) You roped me into that. 
Um, <laughs> and then you roped me into music before that. So, you know. Well, maybe you got another life yet. Still. I, I was going to say, what's the next thing? Uh, <laughs> even though both of them were uh, unintentional, um, I don't think either of them were intentional but maybe the music was a little bit but definitely not the oral histories it was just like hey jake i know you know how to record and i was doing another podcast at the time so and i'm still doing but you know so anyway so thank you josh <laughs> hey my pleasure thanks thanks for having me on and i'm glad it's all going so well and and again if anyone wants to reach out uh they can feel free well, that wraps up this episode of Kankakee Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the uh, the different format of this episode, unlike the other ones. I hope it didn't make it too confusing. And I hope you enjoyed it, even if you never stepped foot inside the Mantino uh, or St. Joseph uh, Church in Mantino. I just find the, the history surrounding the church to be very fascinating, whether you're Catholic or not. Whether you believe or not, I think uh, just knowing uh, the history is is very uh, is very cool. So um, I think it would be great if if all of us could get together and help them rebuild that bell tower because Mantino is just it's just not the same without it, as my brother and I both talked about. So um, so please pick up a copy of Coming Home: The Story of Mantino, Saint Joseph Church, and Our Lady Academy. And uh, after you do that. Please follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram is at Kankakee Podcast. You can also listen to previous episodes at KankakeePodcast.com or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And I look forward to talking with you next week. People tend to stick to you. Thank you.